Blog Talk Radio. Well, bless the Lord, everybody. Bless the Lord. This is Pastor Winfred Burns. And once again, we are live with the Word on Wednesday. We are in the middle of a, hey, Mita, we're in the middle of uh, our second missionary journey with Paul. He was at Philippi last week, and now he moves on to Thessalonica. And before we get started, we're going to have a word of prayer. The reason I'm laughing is uh, my camera person, my wife, just told me that she was getting her union rep because she hasn't got her T-shirt yet. And I, you know, <laughs> it's good that we, we're full of joy tonight. But anyway, let's have a word of prayer so we can dive right into the word and find out what God is saying Now that we've heard from our wife. Eternal God, our Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come to say thank you. God, we bless you because you are good and your mercy endures forever. We thank you that even as we come into your word, we can enter your gates with thanksgiving and enter your courts with praise. We are thankful, O God, for the many blessings that you've bestowed upon us, for our family, for our friends, for the opportunities that you give us to share your word with others. Now, O God, as we go into your word, we pray that you would lead us and guide us that you would help us to understand what you are saying. And then not only help us to understand what you're saying, but by faith help us to do it. Help us to do your will. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So last week we were, um, Paul was in Philippi, and we went through all the incidents that happened to him Uh, with the Philippian jailer being arrested for um, um, following the Holy Spirit and denouncing uh, that devil that had that young girl bound and then getting thrown in jail and not having a pity party while he was in jail, but bombarding heaven with prayers and worship and thanksgiving and how God used that, that whole thing. God placed him in in that jail just so he would get the opportunity to witness to uh, the Philippian jailer. And the jailer and his whole household were saved. And then he met Lydia. And we talked about the Lydias of the world. And we're so thankful for you Lydias, those of you who who come beside us with hospitality, those of you who, who pray for us on a daily basis or pray for us at all, those of you who who, um, who support us financially, uh, all of the things, those of you who will stand up and put your, as they say, put your money where your mouth at, you know, where you will just go and say, I believe so much that I invest myself in it. And so we thank you, all you Lydia's, both male and female. But tonight we leave Philippi and we go to Thessalonica. And again, Thessalonica is in Greece, and you'll note you'll note some of the names that we come through tonight because we'll go through tonight. We'll go into Thessalonica, we'll go into Berea, and we'll wind up hopefully in Athens. And I, I hope to spend just a little more time in Athens um, because there's some things there that I think we really need to see. But even more than that, um, uh, 
there's a theme that is pervasive in the first two paracopes that I'll read, and that theme is that wherever Paul brings the word, there's opposition. There is, there's somebody that's basically going to say, this is wrong for some reason. But, and so they're going to chase him all over the place. The, the Jews are literally going to chase him. And you can expect in ministry that ministry, and, and especially when it's uh, ministering the word of God to people who don't know him, you can expect opposition. I mean, some people think that, you know, once we get saved, for example, we think that we've got this great news, we've got this good news, and everybody should want it because it is the news of God. It is the news that, that Jesus has come and he has brought salvation to all mankind, and all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. I mean, that should be a welcome message, but we find out that, this message is met with resistance. This message is met with hostility. You have people that take this message and pervert it. And so there's always, there's always, it's always a fight. That's why in Jude, it writes, in, Jude in the letter to Jude, he writes, contend for the faith. That's why Jesus asked the question of the disciples, when the Son of Man appears, Will he find faith on the earth? When you know, when he says, when your faith is tried, and that's what we're going through now—a trial of our faith. Will you really, really act on the word of God, or will you fall away when you come when when the opposition comes? In other words, let me put it in a language that we all understand. Do you believe enough to fight for it? Or when somebody comes and says, nah, that Jesus is yours, or says something negative about your faith, will you punk out? Will you curl up in a ball and get quiet? Or will you show people through your life, through the word and the way you understand the word, that Jesus Christ is the way? That's something that we're going to, that's something that we're going to, uh, uh, get into tonight, but I want to start. I want to start reading at Acts chapter seventeen, verse one. Ready? Acts chapter seventeen, verse one. And again, I'm going to go over these first two paracopes very, very quickly. I'm just going to show you the highlights in them and show you the things that you should understand, so I could spend more time when he gets to Athens. And now, remember, now he's going. He's working his way from the northern part of Greece down to the southern part of Greece, okay? So because Thessalonica and Berea, those are all in the northern part of Greece, and now he'll, he'll travel south. Acts, um, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Ampipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, 
as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so what happens? They come to Thessalonica from Philippi. When they come to Thessalonica, Paul reasons with them. And, it, and, and Luke, in writing this, makes a very, very important um he, he writes something very important. He says he reasons with them from the Scripture. He reasons with them from the Scripture. Now, remember, he's in the synagogue, and he is reasoning with them, basically showing them that the Old Testament Scriptures, or the Old Testament as we knew, knew it, know it now, point to Jesus as the Christ of God. The expected Messiah had come and was crucified and was resurrected and was now seated at the right hand of the Father. But he had made his death made it possible for them to be, to be made put in right standing with God. Now that's 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 basically what he argues. And people believe based upon what Paul shows them in the Scripture. I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to that in a few minutes, but I just want to to put that out in front of you right now. Based upon Paul reasoning with them from what they had studied from the time they were children, Paul brings it into focus for them. They, and and. They believe, some believe. Now, one of the things that you'll see is that in each one of these paracroats, some will believe, some won't believe, and some not only won't believe, but some will attack. So you'll have those three groups of people. Now, notice what they attack him on. They don't attack his understanding of the scripture, but instead they accuse him of inciting a riot of being against Caesar, against fomenting sedition. And the authorities take notice of this. Why? Because remember, Rome didn't put up with that mess. If you started something in Rome, they put that down real quick because Caesar was their king. And what they charge Paul with is saying that there is another king. But what they don't say is he means that there is another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, and that he's talking about the things that are happening in the spirit realm that impact the earthly realm. 
He's not trying to overthrow Caesar. He's trying to overthrow Satan. And you know that they call Satan the prince of the power of the air, that you know that he talks about, uh, um, Ephesians talks about, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He is in the process. When we witness, we are in the process not of trying to overthrow our federal or state or local government. We are are in the process of overthrowing and taking divine territory away from Satan, taking people out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of life. And so what the devil does in all all instances, as a matter of fact, is he's going to oppose it. The devil ain't letting these people go. No, not without a fight. The devil, even though you're saved, the devil's still trying to figure out a way to trip you up, to get you back to living a life of sin. And it's a spiritual battle that we fight. And so the charges against Paul here that gets him, that, that, that puts everything in an uproar that is fomented by the Jews is that he's trying to overthrow Caesar. And it'll, it'll work. It works because the Jews have a reputation of being rebellious. So, anyway, so what happens? Jason has to post bond since Jason is their host. And Jason has to assure the authorities that nothing is going to happen and that anything happens in the city regarding Paul and Silas and Timothy. And we notice that, you know, a lot of times we forget that Silas and Timothy are still there, uh, that if anything happens, that they are, that Jason is held liable for it. Okay? Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So he leaves Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He goes to the synagogue again, and he, again, he shows them what the scriptures say. I make it a point here for a reason. He reasons with the Jews according to the scriptures. And their, their response is not, not necessarily to believe immediately what he says, but they say, mm, we got to check this out. And so they go into the scripture, and they are 
diligent in their search because here's a people that is not going to make an emotional decision, but they're going to uh, they're going to make a decision that is logical. They are going to come to a logical, rational conclusion based upon what the scripture says. Why are you saying that, Burns? Why you why, why you say that, Pastor? Because so often we go into church and we check our brain at the door. God is not interested in you making an uninformed decision, nor is he interested in you just taking the word of an individual who witnesses to you. You need to find out if what they are saying is biblically correct. That's why the Bible says, study to show yourself approved. That's why the word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Those are all the reasons why you have to study the word. So many Christians, and I, you know, I say this for Christians all the time, so many of us get caught and go off on the wrong path and eat bad doctrine because we don't go into the book ourselves. We believe something that somebody else says. I remember, I remember many, many years ago, the, there was a saying that went around, God said you make one step, I make two. Oh, we used to, I mean, not only did we say that, we used to sing that. God said you make one step, I make two. And we would just sing that all over the place. And finally, one of my friends challenged me. And he said to me, he says, where is that at in the Bible? Where is it, see, it, that you have to make a step and then God will make two steps. Isn't this a walk of faith? And that you might have to make a whole lot of steps, but you're walking in faith? And I began to think about that, and I knew he was wrong. I knew since so many, pe many people were saying it, and, and we were singing it and having such a glorious time, that it had to be true. And so I went into my Bible trying to find it. And do you know that that's not in there nowhere? And there's a whole lot of little things that we pick up in churches. And it's because we take these things and we don't examine them. These people are honorable. These people say, you know, if I'm going to commit to something, I'm going to understand what I'm committing to. The reason why we have so many weak Christians and Christians that don't really live out the faith is because they've never been taught what they believe in. They get all caught up in the emotionalism of church. And, and before I say, I like some good old, as they call it, high church too. I love when the saints of God are going forth. I love it when we're the praise and worship. I think a, a, a church should be an emotional experience. But does that preclude it from being based on something that is sound and reasoned? Doesn't God say, Come to me with all of you. So when we come to God and we check our brains at the door, we're not coming with all of him. No, it says to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, strength, mind, and emotion, everything. He wants us to love him. And how can we love him if we don't have understanding of him? That's one of the reasons why I'm out here every Wednesday night, 
to make sure we understand what this word is saying. Amen? So these people who are honorable, these people who are serious about this, they get into the word and they begin to study and they get saved because they say, they conclude, the word is true. The other thing I want you to see is, notice how Paul keeps noting the women. It doesn't just say it's the men, but it's men and women. I'll develop that men and women's all a little while later. So, things get hot because the Jews from Thessalonica come down, and when they come down, they, they, come, they come down, they stir up trouble, they basically say the same things that they're agitating and, and, and that, uh, that basically Paul and Silas are, uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are, um, they're, they're causing people to rebel against Caesar. And so the brothers say, you know, the best thing for you to do, Paul, is you to get out of here. And so Paul heads toward Athens, and Silas and Timothy stay with the Bereans and with the people in Thessalonica. One goes to Berea, and the other one goes back to Thessalonica. Why do they go back that way? Because Paul begins to understand that these churches need more help. It's just like a plant. You put a, you put a plant in the ground, and you, wait, you keep watering it, and you keep nurturing it until it takes root and is able to draw the nutrients out of the ground and from the sun by itself. Well, Paul looks, and these are churches that he's planting now. And so he's, he, Paul looks and he says, they're not going to make it if we don't give them some attention. And so he, he winds up leaving his assistants back to help them grow. And from there, he goes to Athens. He goes south to Athens. And Athens is a, is a place that is, well, here, I'll let, I'll let the Bible tell you what it's like down there. Uh, verse 16, I don't know, oh boy, I don't know how, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go as far as I can tonight because I'd love to finish it, but I want to do it and, and make sure that we understand what we've read, and I'm going to ask that you go back and that you reread it. I'm going to drop some tidbits of things on you. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because... He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So we get two, two words here that, uh, actually three. One, they call him a babbler. Now a babbler 
is looked at as a as somebody who is not not necessarily unlearned, but they go around and they pick up a little bit of this and they pick up a little bit of that and they try to form a philosophy around it. And and philosophy is just a systematic understanding of the nature of man. That's what philosophers study. They study the nature of man. And so they call him, they, they basically call him seed pickers. So they pick up a little bit, it's like birds, they hunt around and pick up a seed here, pick up a seed there, and they think they know something. But the more established philosophies or the more established uh, students of various schools of philosophy say to them, that boy don't know what he's talking about because his thought process is not as developed as ours. And Luke specifically mentions two groups that Paul is going that, that Paul is going to face off with. One of them is um, the Epicureans, and Epicurean philosophy basically asks the question: What is the aim of life, and how do you attain it? Epicureans believe that um, life came about through a series of atoms coming together and being passed through a void that refined them and shaped them, and, and it just happened. Now, this is back in the, the – now, this, hap, this is back in – Epicurus, Epicurus was around before Christ. He was a B.C. person. And so this thought had been developed, and I remember we're around 64, 65 A.D., somewhere around in there. No, actually, at this point in time, we're about 52 A.D., I think, in the second missionary journey. So they've had time to develop this philosophy, and Epicureans said, basically said that the aim of life is pleasure. Now, don't get, it, don't get Epicureanism and... Uh, and hedonism mixed up because there was a moral strand of fiber in there, but it basically says, look, the aim of life is pleasure. What we want to do, and pleasure is defined as the absence of, of pain in the body and turmoil in the soul. Now, if you listen real closely, you'll hear um, in, our, in our philosophies today, Tinges of Epicurus. Now, then there's the Stoics. Oh, the other thing about the Epicureans is they, they don't believe in God. They think that God is, just like the, that the body is, that humans are made out of some fine atoms, that the inner man is made out of even finer atoms, and that God, who is really has nothing to do with, with man at all, is made out of even finer atoms than that. And because they were pantheists, they believed that there was a number of gods. They didn't believe in monotheism. They didn't believe in one god. And then you have the Stoics. And the Stoics, um, the easiest way to describe the Stoics is they are more moralist. They believe in God, but they believe that God doesn't interact with man and that God is in everything, um, they're kind of like, they, they're looking for more harmony with nature. 
and that pain and evil are necessary because pain and evil are all a part of getting to a state where, um, how do I want to put this, where, where you could just continue and grow. And stoicism is close to, you know, they, they, they basically say you shouldn't let it bother you. That's the best way to describe it. Don't let that bother you. It's here for a purpose, but, you know, it'll, it'll be all right. Everything's going to work out. As a matter of fact, some people think that Paul gets, uh, takes, his, takes the all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. That, that verse that he writes, they think that that is steeped in his understanding of stoicism. And we have to understand something else about Paul. Okay, and I, I know that, you know, I'm getting a little deep and wordy, but Paul understood these philosophies. He studied them. Paul was not a seed picker. Paul was a very, very learned man, and he had studied these philosophies, so he understood who he was talking to. So later, and, and well, let me not let the cat out the bag. Verse 22. So now that we understand what he's up against, the type of people that he's up against, and it's not just those two groups of thought that he's up against, and it's not just them thinking that he's a knucklehead, can't, that read two verses and now he think he's an expert. Paul, they asked Paul, because they want, they, they're always looking to hear something new, so they asked Paul, come, come and talk with us for a minute. And look what he says, verse 22. I'm not going to finish tonight. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I need to stop there. Ooh, I just, I'm running out of time, and I don't want uh, Okay, let me just say this much, and I, we're going to pick up. I'll go right back to it, but I'll give you some stuff to think about for next week. Number one, there's two lines in here where he quotes uh, Epicurean philosophers. One of them is, in him we live, move, and have our being. Another, uh, another line that, they said, that he says is, where is it at? Oh, 
for we indeed are his offspring. Those are both philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Okay. So what is he doing here? And I'm just going to make this one point, and then we're going to pray, and we'll call it a night. What is he doing here? Notice he's not reasoning with them from the Scripture, but instead he is reasoning with them from their own philosophy. What he's doing is he is doing a logical approach to ministry, a logical taking a logical approach to witnessing to show them that their logic is wrong and that he's going to come to a, a logical conclusion because the conclusions that they have reached through their philosophy is wrong. It is incongruent with what you can observe. So in Thessalonica, Jews, he comes with Scripture. In Berea, he comes with scripture. In Athens, he comes with philosophy. What do we learn? Well, Paul says it himself. He said, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To the Greek, I became as a Greek. I become all things to all people that I might win some. What can we learn from that? We can learn that we need to meet them where they are. What does that mean to us? Well, I'll tell you what it means to me. The reason why we're losing so many people from the church, the reason why we're being ineffective in ministry today, especially when it comes to our young people, is that we are not meeting them where they are. What we're doing is we're meeting them where we were. I remember seeing this from my father in ministry, Pastor C.W. Hobson. He would talk about stuff that he did down on the farm. And he was talking to city kids. And we couldn't relate to that. And so we just, you know, kind of like, yeah, okay, when you was a kid. We couldn't even imagine what he was talking about. And so we tuned him out. Now, what are we, why are the kids tuning us out? Because we're not talking, we're not speaking their language. And I'm not telling y'all to go out there and turn your hair purple and get a mini dress and all the stuff that these young people are doing. I'm saying we need to understand what their view of the world is, just like Paul understood what the world view of the Stoics and the Epicureans were, so we can go into their world and show them that what they are doing does not compute. That makes sense. And we don't do it by insulting them, but and we don't do it by saying y'all should do like we did. They can't do like we did. They don't know what an LP is. They don't know, you know, our records. They don't know what a record player is. Most of these young people don't know what an eight track is. Some of them don't know what a cassette is. You see, that's how so that's how fast the world has changed. And so we're trying to minister to them with the techniques that was used on us and the techniques that were used on us were old then. And we didn't like them. So one of the things that you walk away with tonight is, oh, 
So I need to get a different worldview if I'm going to minister to my children and to my nieces and nephews and to young people. Yes, you need to understand their language. You need to understand their concerns. Their concerns are all the same as ours were, but only the, the translation is different. The way they talk is different. The way they relate to each other is different. But yet we're trying to make them do something and make them understand something on our terms. I'll tell you what it's like. It's just like a person who does not speak English being forced to understand English. Not going to understand English unless he's taught, he taught it. So the best thing, if you want to communicate with them, you better learn their language. Also, you have to learn their customs because the customs of young people today and the customs that we practice, completely different. Completely different. I mean, I'm not that old, but my nieces and nephews look at me like I'm a dinosaur. Why? Because I'm not in their world. And we have to try, if we want to reach them, then we have got to learn to see things as they see them and then minister to them like Paul ministered, uh, tried to minister to, in, in Athens to those people, like he ministered in Thessalonica, like he ministered over in, um, in uh, 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 um, Berea. He ministered to them, and he spoke the language, and he reasoned with them using the methods that they understood. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We're, we're going to pick up right at verse 22 again. I'm sorry I couldn't get farther, uh, and I've gone about six minutes over. Let me pray. Let me let you guys go, and we'll be back at it next week. Let's, let's pray. Eternal God, our Father, it's in Jesus' name we come to say thank you. We bless you, and we praise you for all all that you do. God help us. Sometimes we get so stuck in our ways and so, so stuck in ourselves that we're serving up something that is unpalatable and unedible to people who are hungry for your word. God teach us methods, teach us techniques, teach us how to minister. And God, teach us more than anything else not to keep downing folk because they don't understand what we're saying or judging them and sending them off to hell because they don't do stuff the way we do it. And instead, teach us to serve them in a manner that will show forth your love. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. God keep you and may his face ever shine upon you. I will see you next week for the word on Wednesday. Be blessed and have a wonderful, wonderful evening. If I can stop this thing. <laughs>